You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Thomas Frank. He's the author of One Market Under God, What's the Matter with Kansas, and The Wrecking Crew. He's been a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. He's now working with Harper's. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. You got it, Rick. Thomas, let's uh, flash back to your last weekly column for The Wall Street Journal. Uh, what What you looked at was the continuing uh, insistence by the Republicans that the policies that got us into the financial crisis of 2007 through 2009 would be good policies to pursue to get us out of it. (laughs) It's a, well, you know, the larger picture that I was looking at, you know, I was looking back over two years, I wrote that column, a little more than two years. And, uh, we all thought when I, I started that column in the summer of 2008, and you remember what it was like then. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, well, it was the calm before the storm. Um, the presidential contest was on, and then that fall, everything started to fall apart. Mm. Um, especially if you read the Wall Street Journal. I mean, the headlines, they had these, you know, huge banner headlines. It just seemed like every day another Wall Street fixture had gone down or was getting bailed out or you know, something dreadful was happening. And, you know, uh, I remember when uh, Shearson went down, I, it was, I went into the radio station. Lehman right Brothers. Af- Lehman Brothers, right. yeah. When, when, when they went down, I went into the radio station. I told one of my colleagues, said, mark my words, Johnny, this is the beginning of the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we all thought that. I mean, people on both sides of the, you know, political uh, aisle and, uh, and, you know, people at the Wall Street Journal, as well as people at the New York Times, this was a momentous, you know, series of events. Mm, it still and is. It, and they, you know, and, it, and it, it, it led to the election of the first black president, mm-hmm. who, you know, he, in a lot of ways, everybody thought he was going to be a transformative figure. And then, you know, I look back after two years reading back over those old headlines and all of the things that I wrote. And by the way, I'm very proud of the, the stuff that I wrote for the Wall Street Journal. I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I really liked a lot of it. But it's amazing how little transformation, how little change there was. Yes, I know we got a, uh, you know, a, a, a form of national health care passed. But it was, you know, for people like me, it was a huge disappointment. Mm-hmm. I guess the the right are the only ones that really still believe that Obama was, you know, this has really, really changed America in this in this uh, in this dreadful way. For the rest of us, it's been a uh, it's been it's been pretty anticlimactic. And do you think they really believe that it's changed, though, or do you think well, that they just uh, trumpet that message to force things back? You know, I think that <laughs> some of them. I mean, the health care bill is a is a big deal. We aren't, I mean, it's not at all clear to me exactly how much it's going to change the system. I mean, uh, there's parts of it that I like and parts of it that I don't like, I think like everybody else. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't think it's going to, it's going to, to be the wonderful thing that Democrats think it is. And it's also not the step, you know, to tyranny that, you know, the Republicans are convincing themselves, you know, that they're, they're, they're persuading one another that we're, this is how, you know, red scares happen. They're mm-hmm. talking each other into this state of, of panic. Mm. Um, I don't know what that's, what that's called. I'm sure there's a, a technical term for it. You know, the sort Mass of collective, hysteria. What, what? 
collective or, or mass hysteria. Yeah, it's but a, but but there's no. The the really funny thing about it is that there's very little <clears throat> stimulus for it. I mean, mm-hmm. there. Look, we just came through this terrible period. Uh, you know, that's when there should have been mass hysteria, and there was something close to. I mean, there wasn't anybody in the streets, but there was. Uh, you know, plenty of reason to be afraid mm-hmm. back at the end of '08 mm-hmm. and the beginning of '09 when the banks were failing and the you know the and the Treasury Department was bailing people out, and there seemed to be a massive, you know, we didn't know what was going on with the TARP, you know, with the mm-hmm. gigantic bailout. And that's that was very, very scary because it looked, if you look at it one way, the way the conservatives like to look at it, the government was nationalizing Wall Street. You know, that's not, it's, I know it's not a correct, I know it seems funny now, doesn't it? Yeah. And if you look at it, if you look at it another way, it's the opposite. It's Wall Street has, it, Wall Street controls the government and was just able to write themselves a fat check when they got into trouble. You well, know. That seems like more what happened. <laughs> seems more, more accurate. Yeah. I think that describes the reality of the situation a little bit better. Mm-hmm. But it's scary either way. And what's really um, funny, and we're getting away from the subject here, the, uh, is that the only people in American life that have really um, spoken well to that sense of fear is the Tea Party movement. You know, they still talk about the TARP. Mm-hmm. That's still their number one thing. That's, I mean, the, the, the public, by and large, is not afraid of the health care reform. You know, that's not, that's not going to win a lot of votes for the Republicans this fall. But the, uh, the, the, the bank bailout, the Wall Street bailout, it is. That's, that's bad news. The public hates that. Mm, I mean, even so people that voted for it hated it. <laughs> you remember? Yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, uh, what was who was the Treasury Secretary at the time? Um, Paulson had to get down on one knee to. Uh, isn't that the story? <laughs> had to get down on his knees to, uh, to to Nancy Pelosi to get her to do it, and she was like, yeah, "We can't do it." It's, you know, and she had to. They had to. to they had to, to 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 pull out all the stops to get the, uh, you know, to to get that thing done. Nobody mm-hmm. wanted to do it, except well, Wall Street, of course. Yeah, and it hasn't seemed to have anywhere near the ill effect it it seemed to have it's hard to tell how much it helped except well for i'll tell you why it's what i mean if if you want to get into the you know the details on that there there is you know we can say why it helped because mm-hmm. it it prevented you know the mass destruction of those banks when mm-hmm. lehman brothers went down you saw what happened the stock market fell i don't know how much yeah. but the the economy was shutting down people were stopping lending i mean the 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 system was ceasing to work, and mm-hmm. it was. It hasn't done this in a in a systematic way since the 1930s, when you had a similar situation where banks were failing all over the place. But back then, you didn't really have the machinery to rescue them that we have now. I mean, they mm-hmm. did have it; they just wouldn't. It was the Hoover administration; they wouldn't get off the dime. You know, they wouldn't. They wouldn't lift a finger, <laughs> and and. Uh, uh, this time they were determined to not let that happen, and so they bailed these guys out. And that's fine. Okay, they they did that. I mean, it's not fine. It's got all sorts of problems with it. The, 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 and the main problem is that this implies that the government will bail these guys out again. Mm. Okay, and that gives them a blank check to do whatever the hell they want with with all this money. I mean, they can go out and gamble it. It's like they can go to Vegas, you know, and, and blow it at the at the roulette table because they know that Uncle Sam. Is gonna is gonna make them whole again, mm. and that you you can't allow that. That's and so that's why you had to you had to, it had to be followed by you know getting really tough with Wall Street or breaking those banks up, which would have been the better solution. 
And that didn't happen. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's really scary, but that's not what the Tea Party movement's talking about. No. <laughs> yeah, that's just that's just you know crazy people like me talking about that. Well, well, tell us but what. what that's do you not think that's is... not what you wanted me to talk about. Well, no, I'm interested. What what do you think is the the Tea Party's? What red flags are they waving in front of the voters that they want that they think will get the voters to charge to take that hard right? Uh. They, you know, they look at something like the TARP and they say government takeover, mm-hmm. massive mm-hmm. deficits. Everywhere you look, it's and hey, you got to hand it to them. They they have seen, they have understood whether you know deliberately or just they got lucky. They have understood the kind of appeal that um, that gets people moving in you know bad economic circumstances, and that kind of appeal is you know big. Big picture, you know, end of the world, uh, fear mongering. You know, let's talk about the destruction of freedom kind of kind of politics, and uh, you know they're out there hitting that on all cylinders, and they're being very they're 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 enjoying a lot of success with it. I mean, an amazing amount of success, and the Republicans are probably going to do very well this fall. But what's funny is, you know, okay. So I'm writing this in my last column, and I'm looking back over those the last two years. All of these, you know, huge momentous things happened, and and everything seems just the same in D.C. Nobody, nobody's mind has been changed. Um, you know, you turn on the the radio. I listen to the the radio in the car a lot. I listen to NPR a lot because it's basically it's either if you want to listen to talk radio, it's either that or or you know the right wing. And um, and I listen to the right wing a lot too, but but uh, so I listen to NPR a lot, and, and none of their assumptions have been called into question. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's just business as usual. Everything's chugging along. The other day, um, I guess the other month now, I I was in a public library out in a small town in Washington State, and I picked up a. Uh, a copy of the Guardian Weekly. You know, the British newspaper, they issue this weekly edition, mm-hmm. um, I guess for American readers or something like that. And it had this big headline. I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was something like two years after the crisis. And this was, it was two years since the failure of, of, of Lehman Brothers. Um, it's a two years after the crisis. And, you know, uh, how did they put it? Laissez-faire is still unquestioned. <laughs> And they didn't mean this in a critical way. Mm-hmm. They just they went around and it, you know it was a news story. They went around and surveyed all these uh, heads of central banks, heads of investment banks, you know, in in Europe and America, and the old same old doctrine that you had in the eighties, the nineties, the aughts. Uh, nobody is seriously questioning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they haven't. Nobody perceives that it's that it's under threat. Yes, there's a lot of academics. That have changed their minds, especially back at the University of Chicago. Um, mm, by the okay. way, there's you know all these interesting stories about how they've, you know, certain very prominent uh, Chicago school economic types have have completely changed their tune. And I mean, some of the you know guys that have got the Nobel Prize and stuff. really, yeah. Well, that's uh, and they're the but the they're intellectuals. Of, you know, yeah. they answer to a different code than politicians or Wall Street types. Well, part and, of that, I think, too the a success of the Tea Party is they have their own personal advertising channel network. Oh, yes. <laughs> I yes. mean, it, 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 there's, it, there's never been, a, I think, an alliance like that. That's, and it's really stunning what they're able to do. Yes, it, and, and also, I mean, they have their favorite 
program, of course, Glenn Beck. Mm-hmm. Um, they, well, I mean, people have there's people people point out precedents. People like to talk about Father Coughlin back in the 30s, but I don't think it's I don't think it's an accurate an accurate precedent. I think that this is that the Tea Party movement is only possible given the um, the, the destruction of mainstream news media. Mm. Um, you know, the, given what's happened to the daily newspaper. And that's also, you know, not just in the last two years, but if you go back to, you know, the last 20 years. When I, when I, w- I was studying the Reagan administration, when I was writing The Wrecking Crew, and those, those guys were very afraid of the press mm. and, you know, the power of the media. Mm-hmm. And we think of, you know, scandals like Iran-Contra, which did not really hurt the Reagan administration the way, say, Watergate hurt the Nixon people, even though Iran-Contra was in some ways much more, you know, really uh, called into question that, you know, the rule of law in this country, it, it, it hurt them pretty bad. And that was the, you know, that was the newspapers uh, doing the digging on that. And uh, today, you know, in the Bush administration, you just think of the many sort of similar things to Iran-Contra that came up, and it, it didn't matter at all. You know, the power of the press is gone. It has evaporated. And I mean that both in the sense that it doesn't, politicians aren't afraid anymore, mm-hmm. and the public doesn't care. It, it, the public doesn't. I mean, whether they care or not, it's not in your face in the way it used to be. It doesn't have the. It doesn't project the kind of authority that it used to do. And so you're able to just brush it off. You know what they when they say. Uh, you know, you and I, uh, Rick, came up in a, in, a, in a certain world and went to you know went to university and 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 learned that you understand reality in a certain way and you listen to certain voices and you tune other voices out. And and I don't think that, that 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 way of understanding reality is perfect. And I say that because I was often one of the voices that you were supposed to tune out. You know, <laughs> but 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 that was the sort of uh, that you know that we knew to respect, say, peer-reviewed scholarship. Mm-hmm. You know, just to take a really baseline, a simple thing, we knew to respect the sort of great works of history and scholarship and that daily newspapers were you know they weren't entirely accurate but you could trust them you know to mm-hmm. a certain degree that kind of thing all gone now when you talk about people in the tea party movement that whole way of understanding reality is out the window and it's opened up the um it's opened up the field i think for you know america's always been rich in conspiracy theories um but it's it's opened up uh uh, the field for all these sort of alternate explanations of reality, the main one being, you know, your sort of conspiracy way of, of, of viewing history and viewing what goes on around us, which now sort of, you know, you look at something like Fox News, that's on an equal footing. The sort of conspiracy view of, of the world is on an equal footing with CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. And that's, that's what's made all this possible in my view. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the destruction of the newspaper. It's really been an interesting phenomena, and I know there Apple has recently uh, announced that they're trying to create something called the newsstand, and I think Google is also at work on such a similar. Uh, oh, I don't know about that. What what is it? What is it like? The newsstand is going to be their way to distribute newspapers uh, through the iPad, essentially, and oh, make, and through the iPhone, and. Uh, Google and and uh, their Android operating system have a similar um, 
thing in mind. They're both negotiating like mad with a bunch of newspapers and, and to set up also magazine subscriptions as well. But uh, I think that it's so... And your, and your listeners should all read Har- Harper's Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and buy the, the hard copy paper edition. And I think that's, you know... You can get it online, but you have to be a subscriber. That's their rule. Well, you know, to me, I think one of the things that um, is is a, a big uh, difference between electronic media and, and paper media. Paper media is actually something you can hold. It seems permanent. That piece of paper will be there unless you burn it or crumple it up and throw it in the trash. Not, I used to feel that way as well, but but now, you know, having written for the journal, um, you know, and spent all this, I mean, I've been writing all my life, I, I feel like it's the reverse. Really? Now, yeah, you know, we put out a magazine called The Baffler, and we did this an issue a couple months ago, and I was I was real proud of it. You know, we worked really hard on it, and um, the idea was uh, was print only. I mean, we did do an online uh, version. You can read a bunch of the essays online, and uh, but by and large, um, it was as though we had never done anything. We it's as though we hadn't said a word it was it, it was shocking i mean look there were a bunch of people that yes that commented on it and we entered the debate in certain ways but it didn't have anywhere near the impact and the same is true with um i mean my column in the wall street journal i mean and what was very de- depressing to me it was behind the paywall towards the end as you know mm-hmm. and um that had the effect i don't think it was intended this way but it had the effect of basically meaning that bloggers would not um talk about it mm-hmm. bloggers wouldn't 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 blog about whatever i was writing or whatever any of the other columnists were writing about and uh and so in the sort of broad world of internet discussion and by the way and that's and that's where the journalists you know that's where they do their research now that's where they start um that you know we i wasn't really part of that world because i was i was mainly on paper mm-hmm. i felt the same way when i was writing the wrecking crew that this is going to sound strange but I felt like one of my advantages, one of my the comparative advantages that I have, you know, as a writer compared to other people writing about the um the American right, you know, the conservative movement is that I know how to do library research and mm. I know how to dig through old newspapers and um and old magazines. I mean, it doesn't it sound and you know go through a card catalog and so I was able to dig up just using the technique of, and here I'm going to describe my really super secret method, Rick. Okay. My technique is going to the library. <laughs> what right? is this library? And because where I was you using speak? this technique rather than just doing LexisNexis searches, I was able to dig up about you know twice as much material on on well, say Jack Abramoff, who is one of my my characters in the book, dig up about twice as much material on that guy that anybody else who had, was writing about him had. Because it was all in magazines and newspapers back in the 1980s, and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't on LexisNexis. And to find it, you had to dig. And it wasn't particularly hard you know, to dig this stuff up, but it did mean going to the library. And, and what's, what's weird is that none of this stuff had entered the conversation or, the, or the, the, the research about him or what was being said in the newspapers about him because you couldn't research it. You couldn't search it electronically. And by the way, you still can't because my book isn't uh, avail- isn't searchable electronically, which mm-hmm. is fine with me. Mm-hmm. But uh, but there's this there's this sense in which things that are on paper are invisible, and only the stuff that's electronic. I mean, it's the reverse of what you're saying. So it, it, I it's, see what you mean. It, it, isn't that it's peculiar? We're we are moving into a very strange world. Well, see, my thought was that because you can 
pick the paper, put the paper up, and pick, put it down, pick it up. And it's still the same. That it has a more permanent, a more important feel, say, than a web page because the second you, you refresh your browser, heck, you know, it's changed, and that those words are gone. That's and, right. And there's a feeling, I think, too. And I think this is why. Um, journalism and newspapers in general are starting to lose some of their heft because these things are, are just electronic phosphorus. They they are as the wind. They're, they're released and they're gone and they may never come back again. And I think that makes people perceive them as having less import to them than, say, uh, I, and I guess um, some guy on, uh, on a TV station they watch have running pretty much in the background 24-7 yelling at them. They should be scared. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, I have never in my life really... I, I got out of the TV habit at an early age, mm-hmm. you know, when I, uh, when I went away to college, and I never got back into it. And, you know, I, 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 I've tried, you know, because it was my job, you know, to, 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 to watch TV, and I watch a lot of Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly and that kind of thing. I try to understand these guys. I've never understood why that's so much more compelling to people. Well, okay, okay, I take that back. That's easy to understand. But Well, tell me, well, why is it so Because much the pictures move. <laughs> Come on, Rick. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, yeah, there, there, there you go. Because it's talking to you and looking you in the eye instead of, you know, a piece of paper lying on your kitchen table. Right. Yeah. You don't. Have, there's no processing involved. Pre-processing involved to get the messages. Yeah. Just, and so it's, it's, uh, it seems so much more, uh, you know, honest and earnest uh, and uh, and and uh, immediate than than the newspaper. Um, well, also too, I think, uh, especially um, on the on the right, there, there's a lot of emotional appeal. I mean, yeah. it's not just they're not just giving you information. They yeah. wanna they wanna get you riled. And, yeah. I, and I think that that's a that's a real quantum change from when I think you know back in the '60s and '70s when I used funny, to watch a funny the news. Thing. So a while ago, Glenn Beck made fun of me on his, on his TV show. Really? What did he say? Oh, You're famous. He, he, like he made fun of my name and he made fun of my clothes and that sort of thing. Oh. And you know, big deal, right? Mm-hmm. But what was funny is, um, I mean, it, it's 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 you know totally fine. I'm fair game, and uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't bother me at all. Uh, but what was funny was the barrage of of hate mail that I got afterwards. Really? Well, I mean, it's not surprising that I would get that. That's mm-hmm. a you know, whenever somebody talks about you on TV or whenever you're on TV, you get uh, you get a lot of uh, of email from from strangers, and um, and often a lot of it is 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 pretty hateful. That's just I guess that's just the kind of people that watch TV, or that's how they react. That's, it's it's it is it is strange, but it's not you know I'm I'm used to it. But there was one of them that was um, that was particularly interesting, where the, the where the uh, the guy writing me the email he really wanted to to, to 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 straighten me out about why you know Glenn Beck was was a better guy than me, and he said it was because Glenn Beck had, and I think the word that he used was integrity, and Glenn Beck has integrity, and I not only do I not have it, but I don't understand it. I will never have it. I don't you know I don't even I'm not even on the same. You know, page as as a man with you know a man like Glenn Beck with his you know who's an Everest of integrity apparently he's an Everest and, of something yeah yeah and that and that struck me as 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 
odd for just what, what we're what we're talking about. He's he's a, he's a TV guy. He's on TV for mm-hmm. God's sakes. It's like it's you'd think that your presumption would be the opposite, right? Because we all know it's fake. It's right. TV. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's an act. Whereas an author, you know, yes, you're playing with words. You work hard to to make the sentence. I mean, the sentences aren't the, the same way they would be if you just stood up and started talking about something in a conversation, but. But it's still it's more there's there's less standing between you and the and and the reader. It's just you know it's just me, mm. you know, typing those words into my computer. And then there's a copy editor, you know, at the Wall Street Journal who makes sure that I haven't, you know, screwed up the punctuation. But otherwise, it's just me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk a little bit about newspapers. There, they are. Going downhill. I don't think. Oh this... yeah, they're, no, they're dying. There's no question about it. And, and, and what you said is? about uh, you know about the various efforts to rescue them electronically, you know, we all wish that would work because that's clearly what what they have to do. There has to be some fix that involves the internet. But so far, they haven't been able to make the the for profit model work with the internet Mm-mm, and yet. the newspapers. But I think, uh, uh, again, some of this might just be the technology because if, when you look at the New York Times on an iPad, it's pretty stunning. It's a lot easier. It's frankly easier to read than it is sitting on uh, in your house. And it's a little easier to get through to the, the pieces that you want and, and not have to deal with the pieces you don't want. Yeah, the, the, I, I, didn't, I don't have an iPod. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's quite beautiful. And, you know, again – the, the technology gives you color pictures. It's a little more immersive. It makes the words a little more powerful. I think there's actually some, some room for that. But I think that even if they get back to the point where they're making a profit and they're able to survive between some model of paper and, and paperless, I think that the their impact on American culture is, has been permanently decimated. And I yep. don't think that that can come back no matter whether or not they can make money doing this. I don't think that they can ever have the the New York Times editorial page is not going to have the same kind of clout in the year 2012 when the asteroid hits us as it did in the year 1982 when when Reagan hit us. I think oh, yeah. Reagan will, will probably prove in the long run to be more destructive than the asteroid. But <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to see about that. It depends on the size of the asteroid, of course. Uh, what asteroid are you talking about? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm, there's a, you know the, the Mayan predictions of the end of the world in 2012. Well, I read something about that, but I, I'm not taking that seriously. No, neither am I. But... <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I thought for a second you knew something that I didn't there. I was, uh, uh, no, I was... no, I'm just uh, quoting that. Uh, it's, it's all on the internet, Thomas. Uh, it yeah. must be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's in print. You know what I've always noticed, and this is, speaking as a guy that both write, I write things on my computer. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to write everything longhand. I, hell, I used to type things on a typewriter. Mm. But, uh, you know, I write everything on the computer and then I read it on the on paper also. Uh, I have, and maybe this is just me, but I me- I have mentally I have two different standards, a much higher standard for something that's on printed out on a piece of paper than for something I see on a computer screen. Try this sometime. You know, take your favorite blog and print it out, uh, print out a blog post and read it on a piece of paper, and it's never very impressive. Or if, you know, when you're reading a book or something where the author's really worked hard to make his prose sing, 
and then he'll quote a long passage from a blog, and it stands out because it's so dreadful. You know, the prose is so dreadful. Now, I'm not saying all blogs are like that. Of course, there's there's bound to be a couple that are really fine, and I have some favorites. But um, by and large, there's two different uh, two different prose standards. You know, there's a much higher one for things that are printed. That's because there's this guy who's between the writer and the reader, his name, and he's called himself an editor. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and I yeah. think, you know, I think there are lots of blogs, I think, that might be better, might seem a lot better if somebody would just take the time to, like, even the most basic proofs. But some of these, many of them, are verge on illiterate. Yeah, and, I know. And, I know. and as, as you say, it just when you print them out on a piece of paper, and I've done, I actually have done that a couple times, um, it, it really is kind of striking to, to compare that to something you'll find in a newspaper, even a letter to the editor. Yeah, yeah. Well, so anyhow, this is the world that we're heading into. Um, I mean, the, the, and the, by the way, there's a very good book. My favorite book about the destruction of newspapers is this one by Bob McChesney called Death and Life of American Journalism, um, because it's both, he's the bleakest, he's, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't sugarcoat it. Um, he he has the all the sort of journalism horror stories all there in one place assembled for you to read, and he's he's surveyed all of the ideas that are out there to save the newspaper and discovered that they're all they're all bad. None of these ideas are going to work. Um, he has his own suggestion, which is um, I mean it's a, it's a his suggestion is an excellent one, which is that there has to be some kind of public subsidy for for news gathering for for real journalism. Whether we you know we're not going to save newspapers as a profit profit driven you know model, that's not going to happen. Or it might have a couple of them might make it. The Wall Street Journal might live. You know, New York Times might make it. But you know, places like Wichita, Kansas aren't going to have a newspaper someday. Is what it looks like. Something has to be done. You know that, that you can't have. Um, you you can't have democracy without any without the public being informed. It just doesn't work. It can't work. And so something has to be done. And he has a model that where he proposes uh, various public subsidies. And and uh, it's a really good idea. But there the problem is political. I mean we're heading in exactly the opposite direction right now. You know where the mm-hmm. the, the right is coming back. And the, you know the idea that the, you know they're going to take subsidies away. And and and. That so far, McChesney's solution is the only one that has seemed um, realistic to me, and uh, you know everything else is just is just a pipe dream. You know, the, people just say, "Well, the market will will do something." And it's like, no, it won't. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's all kinds of 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 areas that the market has ruined. I mean, I came out of academia. You look at what's happened there when the you know when the market gets a foothold, a beach a beachhead in academia. I mean, it's it's a disaster. There's all kinds of things, uh, professions that are destroyed. You know, there's uh, actually, medicine for God's sakes. There's actually yeah the the uh, the permission to advertise prescription medicines going to be one of I think will in the long run be seen as one of the worst having one of the worst impacts on health in America. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's just there's just a lot of fantasy out there. Uh, and there, the, the the answer is that there is no answer to this to this problem. It's 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 
it's very depressing. Now, there's actually a good novel out there about uh, newspapers and the, and the death of the newspapers. It's by Tom Rockman called The Imperfectionists. Uh-huh. And it's kind of a, a – it's, it's an interesting uh, uh, construct – construction. It has like a series of kind of interlinked short stories that kind of take you through the the slow demise of a newspaper that's kind of like something like The Guardian or The Economist. And it's I would suggest you you give it a, a look and, and our, my listeners as well. It's a, it's a wonderful novel that kind of looks at the newspapers, interlinks characters, interlinks stories, and gives you an idea, you know, on a on a visceral novelistic level of what's happening. And I think that's equally valuable to to just nonfiction. And fiction has that kind of, uh, can grab you and move you, I think, in as close as possible a way as somebody like Glenn Beck shouting at you. <laughs> you know, I got to hand it to Glenn Beck. You know, I've watched a lot of his show um, that, you know, whatever else we say about his, you know, his, his many, many errors, um, you know, the, the, his sort of paranoid view of, of the world, the guy really is good at what he does. You know, he's very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's funny, and I think we're we're heading into a world of of many Glenn Becks. Mm. Uh, that's the world that we're going to become. Well, I think uh, you need to sign up. <laughs> no, I'm I'm on a full scale retreat from um, you know from from you know I used to have my picture in the paper every Wednesday, and uh, I'm I'm on I'm uh, I don't I don't know, Rick. I'm I'm torn. I. I uh, you know, I want to do my part, and I want to do a good job, and 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 all that sort of thing. But I, I'm I I don't want to be a pundit anymore. I don't want to comment on the news cycle. Mm. Um, I, uh, you know, that's uh, that didn't seem right to me. I mean, it, it's it's a good, it's a noble occupation, but it didn't seem like the right one for me. I like to ha- take a few steps back, you know, and and do my observing from there. Well, we'll be looking forward to the results of your observation. In your hey, next and by book. the way, that doesn't apply. I'll be. I'll talk to. to I'll, I'll do your your be on the radio show anytime you want. Well, I, commenting I'm, on current events, you know. I, I'm so glad because I think, uh, you know, you pro- you do provide that kind of long perspective. I think radio too does something that TV doesn't do, just by virtue of the fact being a pure language medium. You don't have that kind of. Uh, That's right. There's no filter. There's no filter, and I think that's important. I think you should apply a filter, Rick. <laughs> if I did, it would be something like the one an old uh, band called Skinny Puppy used to use. Now everybody rips them off, or it sounds like you're shouting through a megaphone in, in you know, rock and roll songs where they where they sound, rather than having that clear kind of voice. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah sure. <laughs> so, <That's> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how Rudy Valley used to sing. They would he would sing into a megaphone wow. back in back in the 1920s. I, I bet you you really wanted to know that. You could also have a have the what's the the, the tape delay? You know that they do when, when they have the live shows, the callers, so oh. that they can so they can um, bleep out the curse words when people call in. Oh yeah, yeah. We we have that on KUSP, and God, I needed it a few times <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in the studio one not your studio but in the studio of a big station in san francisco when a guy called in and the host it was a big am radio program you know a lot of listeners um and the you could sense the guy was getting madder and madder and madder the caller and they knew exactly when he was going to curse and they got it <laughs> they they pushed the button right when he said it it was it was amazing <laughs> Well, we'll make sure we push the button in a couple of weeks and get back with Thomas Frank. He's the author of One Market Under God, 
What's the Matter with Kansas and The Wrecking Crew, and I look forward greatly to his next book. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. Anytime, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.